Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson three. Father, once again, we thank you for the eternal word of God that you said cannot be violated, it is forever. And yet within it, Father, again, there are so many principles and patterns. And Lord, we thank you as we continue to look into these lessons from the life of Moses, as we look at things that took place in his own life, his own upbringing, his journey, his adventure, that there's many things there for us to learn. And Lord, I'm just asking that you would help me to open my mouth and faithfully amplify and give the sense of some of these things. And while, Lord, again, we know there's no way we can exhaust all of the wisdom that's within your word and all the things to be mined out of it, we would ask that you would grant us that portion today that you desire for us to have, that we might be faithful to that and that you would open the eyes of all of our understanding. Again, O oh Lord, I never grow tired of it. I pray and I ask again, God, even third or fourth time for this day, that you would please grant us your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding and help us to see, help us please to see what is the hope of our calling, what is the riches, what is the riches of the glory of your inheritance that is in us as saints and also that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of the power that is to usward who believe. You said it was according to the very same power that you wrought in your own son Jesus Christ when you raised him from the dead and made him to sit at your own right hand far, far above any principality or power or might, or dominion. And you gave him a name that's above every name. So Lord, I just ask that again today we would somehow lean into the resurrection life that's within us, that we would lean, lean hard against the Holy Spirit who is able to keep us from falling, and that he would be able to speak to us as individuals through these words of heaven, these words, Father, that come from your books that you've given us while we're on this earth. So, Lord, we trust you for that again. Holy Spirit, I yield myself to you again, and I do ask that you'd please be the teacher. Please be the communicator. And keep my soul back from any presumptuous sin. And to just allow us to faithfully communicate the truth as it is written in Jesus' name. So we trust you for this, and we thank you for it in advance. Amen. Intercession is an incredible issue. Like I said the first two hours when we started, all prayer is simply that which we've been called to because God's a God who desires communion, and so he desires for his creation to commune with their creator. And so all of us are called to prayer in one shape or form by virtue of the fact that God longs for communion with his creation. And yet, as we said earlier, there's different levels of things that you begin to discover. You begin to discover people's lives becoming more and more uh, given over to God and people's lives being more and more 
oh, I don't know, alert and active to hear different voices from heaven calling them to come up higher. And so there's this journey <clears throat> that is in every one of our lives that some of us uh, are bolder with, some of us aren't as bold with. But again, in the midst of all of it, I just want to predicate it by saying, remember, God loves us wherever we're at. And so none of us have to be, as it were, super Christians. But it's this curiosity, I think, that God looks for that we're going to get to when we look at Moses looking to see the bush that burns with fire and yet did not burn. There's this curiosity that I think God has put in each of us that he hopes is continually fanned. And in other words, so that something about wanting to know more about this unseen God uh, drives us forward and makes us search deeper, research longer, linger longer, and just want to know uh, about this. Because again, you know, if, if we've ever known or heard or seen or read of anybody that ever walked close to God to the point that it was tangible, to the point that other people's lives were affected by their relationship with this unseen God, that to me that means that my life can begin to get like that. At least I, I believe again because of him not being a respecter of persons that the same opportunity is afforded to each and every one of us. So there's something in that that's what continues to motivate me. I, I want to know more. And, you know, there's all kinds of lessons to learn along the road. One of them is to not be continually deflected by the world's wisdom and those things that popularly pass for God's wisdom. And this, again, is why I harp on the fact that you and I have to be continual students of the Bible itself, that while we read many, 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 many books about the Bible, that we must always make sure that the Bible is that which we read the most because that is that which the Holy Spirit wrote and quickened, and that's where we learn the most. And that's when we put ourselves into an atmosphere or an environment where the author can speak to us. And the author really wants to speak to us. But there's different levels of our faith. You know, again, as the scripture says, God's desire is to take us from faith to faith, from strength to strength, from glory to glory. I know I share that in anything and everything I teach over and over again, but the fact is it's true, progressive, 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 faith to faith. But he loves us on whatever level we're at. Well, Moses heard something, and again, sometimes when we hear these, when we read of these great men that were used, and one thing that God dealt with me about early on in my Christianity is he said, don't limit, he said, these men to being the only ones I look to. And what I mean by that is even when it came to Abram, as I heard a, one of my first teachers say, we don't know who else God may have approached before he found a man who would listen. In other words, because God looks and looks, the Bible says his eyes search, remember, run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone whom he may show himself strong to or through. So we don't know if Abram was the first person he found and, or, or, the, or whatever. We don't know if Moses was, was just a, a victim of his own circumstance or if God would have used someone else. And that doesn't take away from the story. To me, it actually makes it even more beautiful. But nevertheless, Moses is the one that had this journey and this experience. And again, with what is written, we can learn so much. So let's just jump back to Exodus chapter 2. And we'll begin to look where we left off. Um, if you have your notes, it's going to be, I think, point four, where it says another act of justice. But anyhow, let me read here in Exodus 2 again to put us back in the picture. I'm going to start reading from verse 10, Exodus 2:10, And the child grew... And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called him Moses, for she said, Because I drew him out of the water. 
One day after Moses was grown, it happened that he went out to his brethren, looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of Moses' brethren. He looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the second day and saw two Hebrew men quarreling and fighting, and he said to the unjust aggressor, Why are you striking your comrade? And the man said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh's presence and took refuge in the land of Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now where we left off is talking about this character trait that we could see in Moses, a desire to see justice where there was injustice. We're talking about how that's one of the major traits of what real intercession is all about. When you look up the word anywhere it's used in Scripture, you'll find that intercessors are people that are loud clarion voices wanting to bring justice where they find injustice. So this was already at work within him. Uh, Now, one of the things I was taught many years ago, I forget who even shared it with me, but I've never forgot the statement. They said, Uh, They said one of the great mistakes that people in the body of Christ make is they don't take advantage of their frustration. And he said frustration, he said, can either be vented in murmuring, complaining, or griping, or gossip, or frustration, he said, can be vented in what God intended intended for it to be vented in, and that's intercession. I've never forgotten that. He said, you know, if a people could learn to take those times when they find themselves so frustrated, exasperated, and understand that that in the natural can be a call and a tie to the spiritual. That that sense of frustration you feel about, you don't sense the forward motion in your life, you don't sense progress in your situation, that if you could actually interpret that frustration as a call, as a beckoning to intercession, he said it's amazing what would begin to happen if we really began to do that, how much the body of Christ would grow so quickly. Uh, Similar to like when Rick Joyner was here talking about he said the uh, same thing. Francis Frangipan says, says the same thing as well. He said, if our criticism would be turned to intercession, we'd change the world. You know, and these little simple statements where we'd really understand that you and I are faced with choices every day of our life. Well, Moses had this in him. I have this in me, and I wouldn't doubt at all if you have it in you. There's just something, I think, born in the nature of every human being, particularly after they're saved, but even before they're saved. Uh, you know, you have to get hardened. I don't think you're born hardened, are you? You hear what I mean? You're not born hardened to the things of this world where you can see injustice and just turn your head. There's something about you even as a child that you don't like. I mean, there's just, I don't, you don't like things that are unfair. You don't like to see things that just shouldn't happen. And I'm just saying that's part of us. And as life journey takes us forward, often we do get hardened by the events that we encounter. But the issue is this. The issue is that every human being longs to see justice where there's injustice. Now that is something that's been impregnated into the spirit of every person God's ever created. Doesn't that just make sense? So that's where we kind of stop. We we, we read, uh, you know, Moses, he rises up and he kills this this Egyptian. And the next day he sees another injustice and he wants to do something about it. So this was something that was at work in his character, like I said. Though it was impetuous, though it was uh, maybe not founded upon the right actions, the issue was something was working in his spirit. But this was before he had his encounter with God. Then we read Hebrews 11, verse 23 through 27, that the writer of Hebrews gives a little background 
that we don't even see in like Exodus about Moses, how the Spirit of God saw what took place. And it says this, verses 23, Hebrews eleven twenty-three through 27 says, Prompted by faith, Moses, after his birth, was kept concealed for three months by his parents because they saw how comely the child was, and they were not overawed and terrified by the king's decree. Aroused by faith, Moses, when he'd grown to maturity and become great, refused, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he preferred to share the oppression and suffer the hardships and bear the shame of the people of God rather than to have the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life. And like I'm saying, I want you, when you read these scriptures, we're looking at one of the key people that are considered types of intercessors, types of intercession and types of Christ in the Bible. And I want you to see what the scripture says about what was in this man's character. What was at work? What was part of his DNA? I just want you to read it again. Verse 25, he preferred to share the oppression, suffer hardships, bear the shame of the people of God rather than to have the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life. In other words, he saw there were choices. He saw that he could have this. It would be much easier to stay as Pharaoh's adopted grandson and not have to worry about his financial state, not have to worry about where he lived, not have to worry about anything else. But something else was working in the man, working in his spirit, that made his choices much more easy for him to make. It's like Paul in the book of Acts where he says, neither do I count my life dear unto me. Yeah, I quote that a lot. Some of us, the fact of the matter is, all of us at times, if we're honest, some of us don't even know we're doing, but we do count our lives very, very dear. And you are to love yourself, but we're talking about people now who are maybe going to take upon themselves the mantle of an intercessor in a situation. And those are people that are going to have to understand that there's going to, they're going to be introduced into the realm of conflict. They're going to be introduced into the realm of possible hardship by virtue of the fact that intercession in its purest definition, like I said last week, that some people got frightened about, that, but purest intercession is something that is a deep, deep, strong, strong pull that's far beyond just being a prayer warrior in a situation. Because intercession is typified again by Jesus and by Moses and by Isaiah 62 where it says that he shall set watchmen upon the wall who shall never hold their peace day or night and who will never give the eternal one rest until the job is done. There's always this sense of completion that an intercession project has to see before it's actually something that's been an intercession project. And again, please don't get caught up in semantics. We, we're all called to intercede in behalf of things, but I'm just trying to give you what the Bible calls as far as what the definition of an intercessor was. Let me tell you, who was the great intercessor? Let's just go right back to the beginning. Who is the great intercessor? Jesus, Jesus Christ. So he's the first type or pattern. Is that correct? Would anybody have a problem with that? Well, then if you're going to be partakers of the intercessorial ministry that Jesus Christ typified, you get to be willing to die for people that hate you. Okay? Everybody say, that's good news. <laughs> crucifixion is what happened to the great intercessor. But crucifixion couldn't keep him in the grave. Now think about that. Think about that. Think about this calling. It's a high calling. Possibly one of the highest callings in the church because it's the calling that Jesus Christ himself had. He came and he stood between God 
and man. But he had something working deeper in his spirit than the physical surroundings of his life. It's again, you read like Paul. Remember like I'm saying, I'm, he said, I've learned the secret. He said, I've learned how to be content in whatsoever state I'm in. He said, whether I'm abounding with the much or whether I'm base with little, he said, it makes no difference to me because he said, I've learned this power, the secret of contentment. My contentment does not come from my own personal physical circumstances. My contentment and my peace comes from my knowledge and my relationship with this man, Jesus Christ. Now that's the goal for all of us, whether we're intercessors or not, isn't it? Hopefully it is. There is a peace that passes all understanding. There is a place in Christ where the things of this world do, like the song says, grow strangely dim. They grow strangely dim. This stuff just doesn't bother you that much anymore. It just doesn't carry the weight it used to carry. It doesn't mean, mean that God hasn't given you all things to enjoy. You, ha- you hear what I'm See, you have to keep balancing these things because people are prone to go to extremes. That's why you had people, like I said, that dedicated their lives to God by living in monasteries for the rest of their life. And while some of them did good by all the writing that they did and the copying of Bibles and things like that, but many of them, it was quite frankly selfishness because God wants his people that know him in the world not tucked away on a mountaintop in a monastery. So to, to today in today's situation, you know, in business or anything else, God wants people you know, in business that know him. God wants people, you know, in schools, dear God, that know him. You know, God wants people in politics that know him. And all of those people, to a degree, you see, if they can catch, as it were, the revelation of the things that we're even talking about here, they can become, as it were, intercessors by virtue of their very position and that they're here and they're representing something different than everybody else is representing, not by virtue of the fact that their paycheck comes from somebody other than the company they work for, but it's their demeanor, it's the way they live, it's the philosophy of life that they work by. They begin to carry Christ with them, the hope of glory, into these situations. So again, we have to temper it all, but nevertheless, look at what was in the heart of the man. It said that he chose to he chose to go, he chose to give up all the pleasures of the world at that time and not, not uh, and rather, he chose to suffer, it said, the hardships of God's people, the shame that was, that was uh, coexisting at that time with God's people rather than enjoy the, the fleeting pleasure of sin. Because trust me, it is fleeting. Now verse 26 says, he considered the contempt and the abuse and the shame born for the Christ, the Messiah, who was to come, he esteemed any shame associated with his, with his experience with God or what we would say today, we would esteem any reproach that people might try to throw upon us because of our faith in Christ. We would esteem that to be greater wealth than all of the treasure that the world could offer us. But the reason he was able to esteem all of that stuff, not a big deal. In fact, looked upon it as glory and wealth is because it says he looked forward and away to the reward. So again, an intercessor, somehow you and I have to have a real connection to the end result of our life. All I'm trying to say is this. 
we have to be aware of the fact that we're here but for a moment. Our life is but a vapor. Hallelujah. Really. And again, this is not getting into some death wish or, or that. I'm just saying we have, to be, we have to be more grounded in heaven than we are on earth is all I'm trying to say, okay? And I'll repeat again. I'm not saying we can't enjoy the things of earth while we're here. But the issue is when it's all said and done, I look forward. And this is why I try to meditate on heaven and think on heaven because I believe heaven's real. And so that's where my hope lies. And then in verse 27, it says, motivated by faith. And this is why we keep saying faith is such an incredible issue in all matters of prayer as an intercessor, as anybody else. We have to believe in what we do. And we have to believe why we do what we do. Otherwise, we're just going to be following some religious instruction and we're not really going to be impacting anything with what we do because we're only doing it because it's, we've joined a club or something. I'm talking about having a passion. I'm talking about understanding there's a cause. Remember that verse, wherever it is, is there not a cause? Where you actually understand I'm living for something. People all through history died for causes, didn't they? Jesus sure did. Motivated by faith, he left Egypt behind him, being unawed and undismayed by the wrath of the king. And I love it in the Amplified. For he never flinched. Any of you ever flinch? <laughs> I have. For he never flinched, but he held staunchly to his purpose. Purpose is what life is all about. Purposelessness means to just exist. Wake up, go to bed. Wake up, go to bed. But purpose is what this is all about. You and I have to discover that we have breath in our lungs for a reason. And whatever our journey has been, we're going to get to a little bit, has been for a reason. Because God, remember the old bumper sticker, God never makes any junk. But also that God never allows any of his people to be redundant. <laughs> Every single one of us, no matter what our situation, if we have the present, if we have Christ in us, well, that's purpose. That means we have something we can do that no one else can do. Then it can, then it can, it can literally affect the whole world by virtue of the fact that we are a link in this great eternal chain. Motivated by faith, he left Egypt behind him, being unawed and undismayed by the wrath of the king, for he never flinched, but held staunchly to his purpose, and he endured steadfastly as one who gazed on him who is invisible. And we talked about that last week. Now then, point four. I'm going to read again in, Ephesians, in, uh, in Exodus 2, where I left off. Verse 16, Exodus 2, 16, to the end of the chapter. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the trowels to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, or Jethro, their father, he said, How is it that you've come so soon today to his daughters? They said, An Egyptian delivered us from the shepherds, and he drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And she bore a son, and he called his name Gershom, expulsion, or a stranger there. For he said, I've been a stranger and a sojourner in a foreign land. Verse 23, however, after a long time, everybody say a long time. A long time. After a long time, nearly 40 years, the king of Egypt died. 
And the Israelites were sighing and groaning because of the bondage. They kept crying and their cry because of slavery ascended to God. And God heard their sighing and groaning and earnestly remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and took knowledge of them and concerned himself about them, knowing all, understanding, remembering all. So down, down on the outline. Point for another act of justice. In other words, his desire to protect. He sees these shepherds coming against the daughters of Ruel or Jethro and he runs them off. Another act of justice, protection of the daughters of Jethro the well, introduces him to more training, that of a shepherd over sheep, the most dumb of all domestic animals. I always throw that in because we're, he's the shepherd of the sheep, and I always think it's funny that God calls us sheep, and sheep, again, are the most ignorant of all domestic animals. So God, in his great grace and humor, knew exactly what we were like because we always butt up against stuff. Now, in Acts 7, if you'll just turn there for a moment because I want you to see another little history uh, when Stephen is given this incredible, when he's, just before he's stoned to death, where he starts with Moses, basically, and goes all the way through. But he tells the story, and we learn a lot more about Moses right here as well. If I can find Acts in my Bible, I know it's here somewhere. Here it is, Acts chapter 7. I just want us to read these 16 verses, and then because we'll go back to these over the next several weeks. But Acts 7, verse um, 20. Acts 7, verse 20. This is where Stephen is rehearsing this before um, the high priests. Actually, incredible story here when this whole thing. Okay, it says, uh, verse 20. Stephen is rehearsing this in front of all these, like I said, all the, the Pharisees here and what have you, the high priest at the time. At this juncture, verse 20, this juncture, he says, Moses was born. Basically, he's re rehearsing with them their own history. At this juncture, Moses was born and was exceedingly beautiful in God's sight. For three months, he was nurtured in his father's house. Then when he was exposed to perish, the daughter of Pharaoh rescued him and took him and reared him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom and culture of the Egyptians of the world at that time. And he was mighty and powerful in his speech and deeds. And when he was in his 40th year, when, it was in, when he was in his 40th year, it came into his heart to visit his kinsmen, the children of Israel, to help them and to care for them. And on seeing one of them being unjustly treated, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian and slaying him. He expected his brethren to understand that God was granting them deliverance by his hand, taking it for granted that they would accept him, but they did not understand. Then on the next day, he suddenly appeared to some who were quarreling and fighting among themselves, and he urged them to make peace and become reconciled, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you abuse and wrong one another? Whereupon the man who was abusing his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you as a ruler and an umpire and a judge over us? Do you intend to slay me as you slew the Egyptian yesterday? At that reply, Moses sought safety by flight, and he, was in an, and he was an exile and an alien in the country of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when 40 years had gone by, there appeared to him in the wilderness, there appeared to him in the wilderness, the desert of Mount Sinai, an angel in the flame of a burning bramble bush. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he was astonished, 
and marveled at the sight. But he, when he went close to investigate, there came to him the voice of the Lord saying, I am the God of your forefathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and was so terrified that he did not venture to look. Then the Lord said to him, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground and worthy of veneration. Because I have most assuredly seen the abuse and the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard the sign and groan, I have come down to rescue them. So now come, I will send you back to Egypt as my messenger. It was this very Moses whom they had denied, disowned, and rejected, saying, Who made you our ruler, referee, and judge, whom God sent to be a ruler and deliverer and redeemer, by and with the protecting and helping hand of the angel that appeared to him in the bramble bush. He it was who led them forth, having worked wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and during the 40 years in the wilderness. That goes on. But I want you to now, just if we go to the outline, like I said, and begin to look at some other points here, if we could. I've got down here point B. So often the Lord will use our present occupation to train us and prepare us in areas that previously were totally foreign to our personalities and our character. Now I'm talking about, again, here's Moses, four years. In fact, I didn't read the second part of point A, but what the Bible says is that he was 40 years old. Moses was 40 years under Pharaoh's household. He leaves Egypt. He's in the wilderness for 40 years out there working as a, as a shepherd. 40 years he's out there as a shepherd. Then he has this encounter with God. And then he spends another 40 years with God's people after he brings them out in another wilderness trying to communicate to them what it means to obey God. So we've got 40, 40, and 40. We've got 120 years here of preparation, as it were, all through this life of this one man, Moses. And like I said, there's just so many things to see on the journey. But often, let me read point B again. So often, the Lord will use our present occupation to train us and prepare us in areas that previously were totally foreign to our personal character. Moses had been brought up in the house of Pharaoh. Now he's in the shepherd fields of Midian, quite a different surrounding. Point C, your perspective towards your present occupation may be very distorted if you don't view things from God's perspective. Again, this is so simple, but see, so many believers long to get out of their job. You know what I mean? I long to get out of my job because I love God so much. I want to worship God. I want to give all my time to God. When the fact is, Jesus said, I've called you to be salt and where salt gives its best work is where there's little salt or no salt. And again, I'm just saying in the midst of all these things that you and I would curse, often there lies a huge blessing. And wherever, whatever your life has gone through, I mean, my whole life, I mean, I, I mean if you could just look back. In fact, well, <clears throat> I'm jumping ahead of myself over here. But like I have in my notes in the next little part, I just simply put this. What are you learning about people right now? I mean, that's a huge question. It's a simple question, but I want you to think about it. What are you learning about people right now? Because this is all, if you watch this life of Moses, I mean, he's around all these people all this time for 40 years in Pharaoh's house. He sees the best that the world has to offer. And then God, boom, suddenly because of an action of his own heart, he finds himself in the wilderness. Like I said, for 40 years, he's got, he goes from gold and silver and bangles to a shepherd's staff in the middle of of all this area in Midian where he's shepherding. 
But all of these things are training. God has shown him things. All of, all of this is, is opportunity to learn. He's learning people skills. He's learning shepherding skills. He's learning, learning, learning. That's all life is about. Learning, learning, learning. But the people that are in your life right now, some of them are there to teach you things. Some of them are there to teach you what not to do. Some of them are there to teach you what to do. But the fact is, what are you learning right now from the people around about you? Because you need to be people that watch and think and listen. Now, Jesus said, before you get into the judgment thing, let me throw this into this teaching as well. Jesus said you need to learn how to judge righteous judgment. So I'm not saying that you judge people. Remember when we teach the love walk, we talk about that. We're not talking about judging in the sense of judging. The word judge there means to weigh. It means that you need to be mature enough in spirit to weigh other people's actions without weighing the person. In other words, watch what somebody does and says, hmm, that's something I can model myself after. Or watching what somebody does and say, hmm, that's something I don't want to model myself after. But the point is, all of these are skills that God want us to le- wants us to learn because we're going to, at some point, be offered an opportunity to do something with them. So it's very, very important that we learn and that we watch and we're people of, of great observance. This is why a right attitude is always so important. Some will always say, they'll find themselves in situations where they say, oh my God, what's going on? And other people find themselves in the same situation and they'll say, what are you saying to me, God? What are you saying to me in this situation? What are you saying to me in this situation? Every great man and woman of God was a great listener. You have to learn to ask questions. Why are you here? Like I share about Julie, or even I do often. I mean, it just sounds so simple, but there's a little exercise you teach yourself. When you go places and you find yourself someplace unexpectedly, I mean, you can do it. I mean, it's no use in being super spiritual and walking into Sainsbury's because you decided you needed to go shopping and while you're in that aisle saying, why am I here? But if you suddenly find yourself in a place that you had not expected to go or you find yourself in a queue that you did not expect or you find yourself in a traffic jam <laughs> that, you, that, you, sorry, that you didn't expect or whatever, I'm just saying you ask yourself, why, why did I show up at, this, at, the, at that church this weekend or... Why am I here? What is it that you're saying, God? What are you wanting to show me here? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Why am I experiencing this emotion that I don't normally experience? Or what is going on? I'm just saying you have to be inquisitive. Begin to ask yourself questions because you do have someone that can give you answers. But you need a right attitude. You need an attitude in this thing that says just that, God, why? As a, you know, teach me what's going on. What are you trying to say to me right now? What do you want me to learn? And we need to understand that God really wants us to look at the natural. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 46 is where Paul is talking about the first Adam and the last Adam. And he says, first the natural, then the spiritual. You know, I read an article, you know, Paul Scanlon over here in this country, if any of you have seen him on television, he did an article a while back last year sometime called uh, First the Natural. And I'll tell you, it's one of the best articles I ever read. And it was so funny because he was talking about just how so many Christians, you know, are so super spiritual that they miss everything that's right in front of them. And he talks about how so many people, you know, spiritualize everything to the nth degree until it becomes just this mass of of incredulous information that really propels them nowhere, and they continually find themselves in bondage, and they accuse everything that ever happens to themselves on the devil, when a lot of times it was just stupid. It's like he said, like the single guy who doesn't have a job and has got a horrible B.O. and says, well, the devil is against me and doesn't want me to have any relationship. The fact of the matter is he just needs to get a job and take a bath. 
and he might have a relationship. Oh, well, I say that really impressed you guys. <laughs> but the point is, you know, these things in the natural. You just understand that not everything has a spiritual thing. And in fact, and one of the statements he made, because I think I, I picked it up yesterday and I hadn't read it in a long time, one of the statements he made, if I can remember it any, even a little bit, he said it's quite funny. He said that most people in the world, in the natural, there's many, many people in the world that have their lives really pretty together. And Christ isn't even with them. You know what I mean? But their lives are pretty together. So there's even things, in other words, in the natural, what I mean is people without Christ can get their lives together. And here we come to Christ and can't get our lives together. So there's something wrong there somewhere. And so to just consistently spiritualize everything is wrong because you can just get yourself in a mess. God gave you a brain and he gave us some common sense and we need to use some of it as well and quit blaming stuff on the devil that doesn't have anything to do with the devil. That's all I'm trying to say. But here he says, first the natural. And by this I'm saying, again, as an intercessor, somebody's going to be used to it. You need to look for, you learn to look for natural things and natural signs. God does speak through you to things. He speaks to you through symbolism. And he speaks to you through issues. And you learn to watch these things. Even Jesus, I think it's Luke 16, about the corrupt, uh, this corrupt, uh, the governor of this king's, Business, remembering how he was corrupt and he didn't pay anything. And, and Jesus is telling his disciples about the situation where it used to always fascinate me where he tells them uh, how the guy goes to the people that owes his master money and he says, sell all you have and just give me half of the bill and pay half of the bill and I'll give that to him at least. And he's a corrupt man. Jesus is telling a story about a corrupt man who goes and does this so that when his master fires him, he'll, has a, he'll have a house to live in. And so people read that and it confuses them because they almost think that Jesus is telling his disciples to imitate or mimic this corrupt man. But he's not saying that at all. He's saying that even in the world, people understand how to make provision for what they're going to need and what they're going to do. And, and actually, I wrote down the verse in the Message Bible. It's really amazing. In uh, Luke 16, 1 through 8, it's about the crooked messenger, like I said. Jesus was not commending sin, but he was wanting us to be creative and to think. But Luke 16, 9 in the Message Bible, which is the verse that just finishes off that whole thing about this corrupt guy. Listen to Luke 16, 9 in the Message Bible. Jesus said, I want you also to be smart, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival. Listen to that again. I want you also to be smart, but for what is right. In other words, I don't want you to be smart for what was wrong like this guy. But the guy at least was smart. He said, I want you as my people to be smart, but what for is right, but for what is right, using every adversity. See, this is what you and I need to do. In the midst of adversities, like Moses found them in, see, find something to make from it. You hear me? Don't let it bury you, let it, let it wedge you to something else. But he said, I want you also to be smart, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you. To creative survival. I thought that was a good scripture, the message was. Stimulate you to creative survival. Hallelujah. Now then, so what are you learning about people right now? Anybody ever been exposed to these things called people? And I put on point E, what are you learning about yourself right now through them? What are you learning about yourself? Man, the things I've learned about myself around some people. Some people just tie me in knots. I wish they didn't, but they do. You know what I mean? 
And so I learn things about myself. I learn to what level I can go and to what level I can't go. I learn how close I can be to some. I learn how close I must not be to some. I, I learn a lot. And you learn by being around people. Now you can either instantaneously judge the situation or you can learn to deal with it. What I mean by that is I, I, uh, I love this other statement that Francis Frangipan makes. He said, uh, you know, about offenses and what have you. He said, God so loves you. Remember this statement? God so loves you. And he said, he said he will continually put you in places that offend your mind so that it can get to your heart. God so loves you that he will continually put you in places that offend your mind so that he can get to your heart. See, God, I, I, why does this have to do with intercession? I can hear it already going through the air. But see, the heart of the individual is what makes them powerful, your spirit. You can run from situations for the rest of your life that offend your thinking. But trust me, if that continually offends you, then for the rest of your life, you'll be found, you'll find yourself, and I, trust me, you did not plan it, but you will find yourselves in another similar situation that will continue to offend that part of your thinking. Because God wants you to finally get the victory and to conquer something and to learn something from this test. And like we always say, if you pass a test in school, it means you don't have to take it again. That you would pass the thing, come through it, and not find yourself back in it once again. So uh, I'm just saying, this has a lot to do, and this is why over and over again I say, well, all these things you learn, you watch Moses, you know, he keeps finding himself in these situations, and he keeps blowing it, but his nature's right, he's got this, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see this injustice, but he's, you know, he's going about things the wrong way, so now he finds himself banished away from all that was comfortable. And I don't know how else to say it, but when God begins to woo people towards this art of intercession, there was a book written called The Art of Intercession once, uh, there is a cutting loose, there is a letting go, there is a, there is a choice that's made where all of a sudden you pull from that which was comfortable, and I'm telling you, you just enter into some things that are uncomfortable. But again, even in the midst of all those things that are uncomfortable, they can either be just that, they can be uncomfortable and a curse to you, or you can make them be a blessing by virtue of the fact that you know God's with you and he'll never forgive you, and never leave you or forsake you, rather, and that there's a thing, there's, this is a season in my life. Everything God does, he does by seasons, remember, when it's winter, it is not spring. It's just not spring. But spring follows, you know. Spring will come, and that's when the life will come. But in the midst of this thing, if you don't learn how to deal with winter, you'll never have a spring. What I mean is you're just, you'll just mess up for the rest of your life, and I don't want you to mess up for the rest of your life. So God's heard his people's cry. Now, Exodus chapter 3. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back or the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire, yet was not consumed. And Moses said, and Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why, why the bush is not burned. Now, if you have your outlines, in point five, I've got this simple statement. Point A, prospective intercessors, it seems, normally have 
some form, and I put that on italics because I wanted to make sure it wasn't misunderstood. Prospective intercession, intercessors, it seems, normally have some form of encounter with the Spirit of God, with the manifestation of the Spirit of God. He has within him, again, I began to speak about this earlier, he has within him the curiosity that draws him to come nearer, to seek, to understand more. Now, I, I put down here, has this been the case with yourself? What or who has caused you? Seriously, what? What? Or who has caused you to move nearer to him? Hopefully, everybody's had some encounter, some something that sparked their curiosity. Whether it was another person's life and you saw just something or whatever it was. But the point is, this is what begins to happen. You'll see this all through scripture. Something will happen that will, that will offer you an opportunity to exercise your curiosity and to want to come near, to want to come closer. Now, what I put down here is I wonder how many of the shepherds, as I related about Abram, I wonder if, I mean, because there were all manner of shepherds in Midian. And I don't know, you see, I'm not trying to take away from this thing that happened with Moses, but knowing how desperately God loves his people and how he'd heard their cry and wanted to deliver them, I know that today God is looking for all manner of people that will accept, as it were, the call to prayer, because we're all called to pray. But it's so amazing, and in any given church service, again, as you'll know, where the Spirit of God manifests, isn't it true? That while you, have may, you may have a few that are deeply impacted and made deeply curious, you have others that just, it seems like nothing happened at all. They can care less. Wasn't a big deal. Nothing. And yet they're exposed to the very same thing that others were exposed to. I mean, you know, again, I always relate the story then of God's people. In fact, later on with Moses, when Moses, we really see him as an intercessor, when remember the sons of Korah come against him. And, I, you know, I always tell it kind of humorously, although it wasn't anything from a humorous situation, but where it shows the absolute stupidity of the people of God in that remember all of the sons of Korah come against the leadership of Moses and they begin to complain and say, we will make captains over ourselves. We will go back to Egypt. We'll go whatever. We'll do whatever we want to do. And Moses says, no, 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 don't, please don't do this. And they continue to harden their hearts, say, no, we're going to do what we want to do. We don't want you as a leader anymore. We want somebody else. We'll create a leader amongst yourselves. And so Moses, by the Spirit of God, says then, he said, I, he said everybody who wants to follow Korah, stay with Korah. But everyone who wants to follow the Lord, come on this side. And behold, he said, if what happens today ever happens again, he said, well, remember what does happen. The whole earth opens up and swallows all of Korah and all of their kinsmen, everybody. That's, it swallows them, it says, alive into the pit with screaming and yelling. And so you've got all of these people. This is a historical event. It's not a joke, remember. All these people on this side of the room, as it were, that watch this side of the room open up and watch everybody be swallowed alive into the pit. Well, to me, that would have been, been an, a memorable event. You understand? To see the earth open up and swallow all these people alive into the pit. A memorable event because of their complaining and murmuring against Moses. That would have shook me a little bit. You know what I mean? I would have, that was a manifestation of something that was a bit heavy. But the Bible then says, the next morning, the next morning that these people on this side began to murmur against Moses. Well, I mean, 
To me, that is beyond stupid. You've just 24, yesterday, today's Tuesday. Monday, you just saw the whole earth open up and swallow about, you know, several thousand people alive because, and you heard them complaining against the guy. And so today, you rise up and you start complaining against the guy. Same thing. That to me would mean maybe you're not all there. Maybe there's dimness. Maybe you've got, like they say, the lights are on, but nobody's home. You know what I mean? You got one oar in the water and one oar out of the water, whatever. All I know is that uh, God's people are funny. So curiosity, there'll be people in a situation, but God will be faithful to lead every one of you near him. I mean, because again, God's call comes to all men. And God will show himself, but God looks for these people that are curious. And I put down here again, has this been the case with you? What or who has caused you to move nearer to him? And I said questions there. Could other shepherds have possibly seen this manifestation? And realistically, I think we have to say yes, even though some people say it would take away, but it doesn't take away from it. It's just that we don't know. And then I said, question number two, why do some fear what others revere? And I don't know. It's just something that's in the nature of people. I don't know if it's because they're all, what's happened to them or what. Point C in Exodus 3, verse 4 through 9. Now, let's read those. Verse 3 says, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. God said, Do not come near. Put your shoes off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Also, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and oppressors. For I know their sorrows and sufferings and trials, and I have come down to deliver them. Everybody say that. I have come down to deliver them out of the power. It says, I've come to deliver them out of the hand and the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a large, to a land good and large, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty to the, vase, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the Egyptians has come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Now what's verse 10 say? Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Point C. In Exodus 3, 4 through 9, God lets Moses know in absolute terms. In absolute terms, he has heard the cry of his people. I said he has heard the cry of his people. I related to this last week already, but I got to just keep saying it again. God lets Moses know in no uncertain terms, he has heard the cry of his people. God always hears the cry of his people. God said, God said, God said, I have come down to deliver the people. But how did he come down to deliver them? What I mean is, I'm not saying that the manifestation of the burning bush. He came down to meet a human being who would represent him, who would be sent in his name that we're going to find out, who would be sent 
to go to the situation, to go to the middle of the situation, and to cause that for which God said, I'm come down. Now, again, this is where we're going to have to wind up stopping, but this is where we'll take off. When God has something to do, he has to find a person. Do you hear me? A man who will stand before God and then go before man. This is the basic truth of the whole book. This is why each and every individual has, as it were, the opportunity. But you have to get this pattern, because I don't want to get ahead of myself right now, because I say it in everything I teach, but you've got to be delivered from this wrong thinking that God just does what God wants to do. God does what he does through people who listen and obey. It's a simple, but see again, people live their lives by waiting for God to do something. When God's in the business of sending people, sending people, and the people do something in God's name. The people do. This is, God lets Moses know in absolute terms that he has heard the cry of his people. This is extremely vital for each man and woman of God to understand. God is seeing and is listening regardless of timing. What your timing is and what God's timing is might be a little bit different. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a large and good place. Now think about, yeah, just as I close, Moses, if that's all he said, wouldn't it be great if you pull aside to see this manifestation and you're standing there going and you're fearful because it's so powerful and God, you hear God's voice saying, I have come down to earth to deliver my people. About that time you'd be going, oh, this is so great. This is so great. God's come down to deliver. God's come down to deliver. Hallelujah. God's come down to deliver. And you're kind of waiting. And then God says, come now, you're going to go do it. And you go. And that's what we're going to see. But this is why we're going to walk through his life a little bit. We're going to look at his questions, look at God's answers, look at his complaints, and look at God's response. Father, we thank you for these simple words and these simple truths that are in this incredible book of yours. And again, Father, I pray that you grant us patience as we walk this route to see the things that you want us to glean from it, to look at our own character, our own life, our own situation, and to see them as opportunities, not as curses, that we might take adversity and use it to create or to bring forth creativity in our own lives so that we can be used by you, Father, to help others, that we might become a little more selfless so that we can help others. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.